0: good morning christ community church i want to welcome you to this celebration of palm sunday and i'm bringing the introduction of today's message from my home and uh, i want you to know we miss you all and we just can't wait to see you again uh hopefully sooner than later We want to encourage you to join with us in unceasing prayer for our nation, for our community and for the world and pray especially for those members of Christ Community Church who are healthcare workers. Uh, Guys, we need to lift them up uh, as they enter the fray here and as they enter our cult out elsewhere. So uh, help us to pray for them. Today's message is a flashback, actually, meaning we're going back to John chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 12 because that's where John puts the triumphal entry story. And the context of that story today is the king's arrival, but leading up to that is we begin with Mary's anointing of Jesus. In John 12, verses 1 through 3, I want to read it to you. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, And Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so everyone in this story today responds in some way to Jesus, and I want to take the time to look at their, their responses and suggest that you and I also, similarly, are faced with how we are going to respond to the walking controversy that is Jesus from Nazareth. So first thing that we observe, the first thing that we observe is that Lazarus' family welcomed Jesus and they, they honored him with a banquet. They were already followers and disciples of, of his teachings. They had already received incalculable grace and forgiveness. They had their brother back from the dead because of Jesus. So they demonstrated their gratitude and esteemed him by throwing a dinner party in his honor. And let me briefly mention the definition of honor and why that's so important in the text. The Greek word for honor is the word timao. It's the word timao. And it means to properly assign value or worth. To properly assign value or worth. To show one's esteem for someone that esteem being commensurate with their actual value. And so theirs was an elder honor culture. The Torah in Exodus 20 commanded the Jews to honor their parents. In 1 Samuel 1, Hannah burst into praise to God for honoring the lowly and the poor. And the psalmist said, What is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with what? Glory and honor. The opposite of honor is, of course, shame. For ancient people in the Near Eastern region where Jesus lived, the worst possible fate was to lose your public honor. Worse than your death, even to experience social death, to be shamed, humiliated, to have your name become a curse word in the minds of your social group, that was the worst fate you could suffer for them. And that's what the cross did to every person unfortunate enough to experience Rome's wrath. The cross wasn't just Rome's way of killing you. It was their way of erasing the memory of you from the earth in an act of horrific shame. People uh, at this dinner party are there to honor Jesus. And the people in Lazarus's household, his family, the disciples, they're there to properly assign the value and the worth that is due the one who is the resurrection and the life. Now, a word of application here. As disciples, here's what I think it means for us. We honor Jesus when we acknowledge who He really is, the Son of God and God the Son, the crucified and resurrected Lord of all. We honor Him. We honor Jesus when we also listen to His word and submit our lives to it. The greatest challenge that I face as a human being is the temptation to live by my own rule, to be the King and Lord of my own life, to follow my own word, not His. And Jesus calls us to surrender and submit to His teaching, so we honor Him when we surrender to His word. And we also honor Jesus, thirdly, when we love what He loves. Jesus loves people and he showed them the practical compassion of God in thousands of ways. And John says there's just not enough books in all of Rome to contain the signs, all the stories of the signs and the compassionate works of Jesus that Jesus did among the people. And so Lazarus' family, their dinner guests, are there to welcome and honor and show the proper respect that is due Jesus for who he is and what he has done. Now the second thing we observe here is that Judas chose to dishonor Jesus. In fact, he publicly chastises Jesus. In verses four through six, we see this scene play out. I'll read it to you, it says, "Uh, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him said, "Uh, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor. but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and he would often steal money out of it. Wow. I mean, there's a lot going on in this passage here. I think you would agree. Obviously, the the disciples discover later uh, that this guy has pernicious intentions and he's had them from the beginning. Now, Judas feigns pragmatism here. Now, to be sure, ministering to the poor and the needs of those who are down and out, that is close to the heart of Jesus. He said in Matthew 25, he said, as you have done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. But Judas has just chosen the lesser priority. There will be no shortage of opportunities to minister to the poor. But right now, Mary has chosen the better of the two to honor Jesus. And I want to be clear about this. The extravagance of her gift is an expression of how much she valued her Lord. She offered him an extravagant act of honor and worship. Lavish praise is always appropriate for the disciple. And sometimes we have to make pragmatic choices, and many of you are faced uh, with those dire, difficult choices in your businesses and with employees and the rest. And And I want you to know our leadership team, we are praying every day, crying out to God for you and and our nation. But in the midst of all the practical and the nitty gritty, the decisions that need to be made, I wanna encourage you today to make room in your heart for the master. Take the time to offer him generous praise. Whether you're traveling to a dangerous hotspot for business or facing challenges, that this whole pandemic situation has compounded. Maybe it's compounded your health issues or your financial issues in the midst of it. Create the space and the time to give God praise and thanksgiving for all of his goodness. I think about David dancing in praise before the Lord. How immodest, you know. How embarrassing, actually. Nope, David didn't think so. When he was challenged with that, he said, I will become even more undignified than this when it comes to the worship of my God. And though I certainly wouldn't encourage you to go out and dance in the buff in the mall, I think we need the spirit and attitude of David to prioritize giving thanks to God in the midst of very difficult circumstances. You know, I bet Judas was a guy with uh, questions, and I bet he had some doubts about Jesus along the way. And I bet the other disciples did too, but the difference between Judas and the other disciples who stayed with Jesus is that I think, this is me personally, I think that Judas wasn't willing to wait for God's answer to the questions. And so his response is really the opposite of showing Jesus the honor and deference that is due him. He really dishonors Jesus, his his master, because he's not willing to wait for the answer to all of his questions the third thing I think we see in the passage the third response is the religious authorities now they wanted to silence Jesus John 12 9 through 10 I'll read that to you it says um, then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there they came not only because of Jesus but also to see Lazarus the one he had raised from the dead but the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also not just Jesus but they wanted to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Think about that. Now the chief source of opposition to Jesus isn't Rome or the pagans. It's the religious people. They want to silence him because he is more popular among the people than they are. Jealousy can be a powerful motivator. As an illustration of this, my uh, wife, and my oldest son, they like to watch. They love to watch those crime detective shows like Dateline NBC and Forty Eight Hours. And and personally, I'm not a fan. Uh, but the shows are, are usually on in the background while I'm working on something else. And uh, but I've been struck by how many secret murder plots between spouses and jilted lovers and the friend next door. They're all. They all seem to be motivated by jealousy. It's a powerful emotion that can cause us to do things that rationally we know they're just crazy and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes they all want to shut the Jesus show down he's a city on a hill Jesus is the light of the world and the staff of Moses to whom all people are looking for hope and for healing and for salvation and they can't stand the fact that he's more popular than they are but it's more than just jealousy it's more than just the jealousy of his stratospheric Success. No, they want to silence him because he has publicly humiliated them and taken their honor. As an honored master or leader, your greatest prize in life is the social deference and esteem that people show you. And the worst thing that can happen to you is not death, it's not your physical death in this world, it's dishonor. And Jesus has repeatedly embarrassed them, stripping them of their privileged life and status and the flattery that they have come to crave and covet. And ultimately, it's his authority, his status as Supreme Lord and God that they cannot take. They can't stand it. So it's not just jealousy. It's the fact that Jesus has embarrassed them publicly and shamed them publicly. And you and I have a choice today. Will we show him the extravagant worship and praise that is due him by surrendering to his teachings and his word, regardless of how hard things get in the world today? or will we resist his lordship, resist the coming king? The ultimate act of honoring and glorifying Jesus is to acknowledge him as your king, sovereign reigning over you. And so I've asked Pastor Patrick to uh, lead us through the triumphal entry passage today. God bless you, love you guys. Hey church, that was awesome. I think Jeff laid out a perfect experience
1: and setting for what the triumphal entry is all about. The day has come and it, it is the Passover, it's a festival week. And so the city is swelled to two, three, four times its original size. The inns and the places where people can sleep are overburdened. So throughout the city, people are camping outside the city walls. And so as Jesus and this crowd that came to witness and hear about raising Lazarus from the dead, as that crowd travels towards Jerusalem, it acts like gravity pulling more and more and more people together. And so we pick up in John chapter 12 Verse 12 through 15, and this is what John the Apostle writes. He says, the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it had been written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Because the city had swelled up and people had been drawn to Jesus, there was also this nationalistic fervor. When they started shouting and saying, Hosanna, others began to lay cloaks down and palm fronds are being waved. These are all symbolic. There's a big message being told here. They're receiving a king. The crowd wanted their own kingdom. They wanted something like they had in the past. And so as Jesus is coming down, the the energy and the excitement begin to build. And they began shouting and recalling what is said in Psalm 118, Hosanna. And Hosanna literally means save us now. Save us now. We want salvation. But they're a little bit off on the salvation they believe that they need. Because they add a little tagline at the end of it. In Psalm 118, it doesn't say the king of Israel. They add that part. Now, John's giving us the ability to see that this is true. It is the king of Israel, but nonetheless, they've added it because the palm fronds were a symbol of nationalistic fervor. To be a nation unto themselves, to be distinct from Rome. Palm fronds were used during the Maccabean revolt. In fact, in a couple years, when the nation of Israel does revolt against Rome, they mint their own coins and they put a palm frond on those coins. And so as they begin to wave these palm fronds, what they are symbol, uh, in, in revealing is their desire to want their own kingdom. They wanted Jesus to make war against Rome. But instead, what did Jesus come to do? Make peace with God. And visually, visually, Jesus is actually portraying this. That's why the prophecy is so amazing in Zechariah 9. He's coming sitting on a donkey. This isn't a war horse. This is a conquering king. This is someone who's coming in the form of a servant to be a beast of burden for all people. And now the town and the city may overlook that, but that's nonetheless what's taking place. Jesus is coming to be a burden and to be a servant for all. And so at the end of this, the praise of this people is faulty. It's incomplete. It's broken. It's misguided. But you know what John's doing? John's permitting us to see the double meaning. That although their praise and adoration to Jesus, the proclamation of his his name and his welcome into the city is misguided, it's still the truth. He is still the king being received by his kingdom and by his people. And so we have to ask ourselves a probing question. In our celebration of Jesus, are we sometimes guilty of mixed motives also? I can certainly say so for me, and I look throughout history, and I see many times where Jesus has been uh, adopted into someone else's desires and belief. Think about the Crusades. What did every army that fought say they were fighting for? God is on our side. He wants this for us. The Thirty Years' War in, in, in Europe between the Catholics and the Protestants, God was on both sides apparently but let's bring it down to the micro, to you and I. I'm becoming acutely aware of my selfish desires to want to add Jesus to the very things I desire. I want to redeem the things that I want to do. I want to be in control and I want Jesus to bless it. These people and the crowd that is surrounding them are declaring that they want a king. But Jesus actually still receives their praise, although it may be misguided, although it may be broken, um, although it may be inappropriate. We know that because Jesus is actually scolded in Luke's account of the triumphal entry by the, by the Pharisees when they tell Jesus, "Hey, silence your disciples. In one way, the Pharisees are actually right because the disciples have joined in. They've lumped themselves into this nationalistic fervor and excitement. But what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? He rebukes them. And he actually says, if they are silent, the very rocks would cry out. Jesus is worthy to, be re- to receive praise. Last year when I talked about Palm Sunday, I had this vivid um, picture of when I was younger coming into a, a church service in a from a children's ministry, and it was Palm Sunday. And every kid got a palm frond, and we were waving it, and we came up front. if you remember me telling the story, before I even made it in, I was so excited with my vigorous shaking of that palm frond, I actually broke it in half. And so my palm frond was half as tall, and it was a little limp sticking over. And eventually, I'm coming in. And throughout the whole time of being on stage and coming up, my brother was standing right next to me. I was trying to trade my palm frond with his. I wanted his palm from because I can't worship Jesus with this. This is inappropriate. This is wrong. I stand out. But I look big picture and I see I kind of do that still to this day. I'm attempting to switch a life and I switch a praise with someone else as if their praise is more deserving and more, uh, blesses the Lord more than mine. I find a lot of blessing and encouragement that Christ, although the worship of the people is misguided, he still receives it. Somewhere in their heart, it's still genuine to a degree. And despite our mixed motives, despite our feeble praise, the Lord graciously welcomes us into his presence to praise his name. Because there's a process, as Jeff talked about, in order for us to honor Jesus, we have to sacrifice and die into him ourselves. That is a process that's ongoing. And so the crowd wanted their own kingdom. But I have to ask this other question: what do the disciples want? I think the answer is clear. Disciples didn't know what to want. They didn't know what to want. Look with me in John, verses 16 through 19, it says this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him, and they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard what he had done, that he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Those closest to Jesus were swept up in the excitement and began to join in. They may have thought their future place was in the court of this king, that they would be co-regents with Christ. They are swept up in the excitement. In the back of their mind, they can remember the times Jesus has reminded them, described to them of his impending death. And they may have thought, oh, that's a long ways off. This isn't true. Peter got rebuked for it. But the disciples have been swept up. It is only after the fact, after the cross, after the resurrection, do the disciples, in addition with the Holy Spirit, are able to recognize and see the big picture of everything that's going on. But notice, does all of the misappropriated praise stop Jesus from entering the city? It doesn't discourage him. It doesn't move him off the donkey and say, I'm going to come back when they get it, when they understand. No, the very opposite. He knows what must be done and whom he's obeying neither the Pharisees the crowds or the disciples uh, departure from what what is right deters Christ from fulfilling the mission that has been given to him in the incarnation what he had come to do what he actually wanted to do and so we have Mary and her family want to honor Christ we have Judas who wants to fight and push against Christ. We have the Pharisees who wants to silence Christ. We have the crowd that wants him because of their expectations, not his. And we have the disciples who are swept up in all this. But what does Christ want? What does he want in the triumphal entry? Christ wants to glorify the Father by gathering the world to himself. Christ wanted to glorify the Father by gathering the world to Himself. Look with me in John chapter 12, 20 through 26. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies and produces much fruit, the one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. But if anyone, but, yeah, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Notice what the Pharisees said right before this passage, said, look, the world has gone after him. And then John puts this interaction that's not recorded in other ones. Now some Greeks came to worship at the festival. Greeks here are, yeah, they they were literally were Greek people. They went to talk to Philip because he was from a Greek city and they thought they had some camaraderie. But what John is portraying is the world has come to Jesus. These Greeks represent the world at large. And so as they've approached Jesus, they want to see him, but... They can't receive Jesus yet, not until he's gone to the cross, which is why he kind of ignore. Jesus seems to ignore the request to talk with the Greeks. And so Jesus now says, the time and the hour has come. This is my time. This is my time to glorify the Father. And so he passes over the request. Instead, he counsels his disciple to accept what's coming. They'll have a choice to make to believe in him or to reject him, to remain devoted to, uh, to self-exaltation or to practice self-denial, which is why he says, if a grain doesn't die, it cannot produce fruit. Jesus is prophesying his own death that's impending. Now, it's hard for them to see with the great commotion and celebration going on, but he is encouraging them to follow his example that's coming. And so he tells them, anyone who loves this life will lose it and anyone who hates this life will have eternal life. We've heard this quoted many times. I'm sure it's kind of familiar. But given the context of the passage, what he is describing is you need to stop. Anyone who fills their life with self-absorbing, self-absorption, is going to eventually lose it. But the person who practices self-denial, who dies to self, will be the very ones who will receive eternal life. Now, I need to say self-absorption, I see it on a daily basis. I have an almost two-year-old, Theo, who has meltdowns consistently throughout the day. A two-year-old is essentially the physical embodiment of self-absorption. And the reason why I know that is because he's met with a fight against that self-absorption through Kelsey and I. He says whatever he wants, he wants whatever he wants. He wants his cheese, his chocolate milk. He wants to follow his brothers. And when he can't get that, he melts down kicking and screaming, laying on the floor. It's cute the first couple times, but by the 13th, 14th, 15th time of the day, you're done with it. You're ready to move on. And so Theo goes throughout his day giving me an example of what self-absorption looks like and the result. And so John gives us an awesome example of what he means. So what do we lose? When we lose life, if it's self-absorption, what do we actually lose? Well, look at the context of eternal life. In John, throughout his gospel, eternal life isn't necessarily the quality, excuse me, it's not the quantity, it's the quality of life. Jesus, throughout the rest of this week, is going to be presenting his disciples with promises of the quality of life, of being and having peace, following him, knowing joy, having hope, having friendship with him, which we've talked about many times in the past couple of weeks. A friendship with Christ means that we have faithfulness, we have a faithful relationship, we have confidence that things won't change. We have a person who can empathize and sympathize with us. So these aspects Jesus is going to be portraying, if we live a life of self-absorption, which is in contrast and fights against the sovereignty of God, if we do that, we won't have these things. We won't have hope. We won't have peace. We won't know joy. We certainly won't be content. We'll forget what satisfaction feels like. And so Jesus is presenting his disciples with a choice. Hate this life. He actually tells us in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Are we willing to do the same? Or are we like the other subjects in this story, who really just wanted what they want. Outside of Mary and her family, every version has been a self absorption perspective on who Jesus is. Whether it was a challenge, whether it was a desire to just have him approve and, and give us what we want, meet our expectations. But Jesus says this is not the way it's to be. We must deny ourselves and follow him. And so I'm not yet fully convinced of our time of quarantine has helped me to recognize this, but I think it has. I think through being alone and separated from people, being in my own mind, and my own house, it has actually heightened my sense to my self-absorption. I've been so focused on self. This time of worship, just a couple minutes ago, as we were seeing here, it reminded me to take my mind off of myself and my circumstances and place it on the one who is certain about all things and in control of all things, and it just rendered immense blessing into my heart. I needed it. I can't be the only one who experienced that not too long ago. And so any idea of wanting the quality of life that Jesus is offering will be threatened by self-absorption. And so if I do begin to practice self-denial and pick up my cross and follow Jesus as he's demonstrating and and imploring his disciples to make that choice, how can I be so sure it's going to work? What guarantee do I have that this is the path that I must follow as a disciple and I want to follow as a disciple? I think Jesus gives us some awesome explanations in the next couple verses because it helps us to understand the guarantee he's giving us in following a life after his, a life of sacrifice, a life of service. John 12, 27 through 33 says, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that's why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is my favorite verse in this whole section. Then the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. There is a response from the crowd and the people, but here I see five points that help us to guarantee that a life of self-denial will result in the quality of life that we're all searching for, we're all hoping for, and wishing to to receive from the Lord. The first thing that guarantee that we have, the suffering and the trial that Jesus endured, it was real. Notice the first part, 27, now my soul is troubled because the hour has come. He knows his impending death. He knows how he's going to die a brutal death on the cross. But his trouble in that moment, it, it helps us to recognize his humanity. He felt the weight and burden of God's impending wrath. He really did this for you and I. And he ex- willingly accepted it because his trouble turned into his confidence. Notice the vex- very next thing. He, he dis- displays his resolve is, be- is secure. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? He gives this question. And then he responds with his security. But this is why I came. This is the very hour why you sent me. His heart is secure. Because the next thing, part of the guarantee, he didn't seek his own glory. In practicing self-denial, he is rendering service to the Lord to glorify his name. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. That's been his hope and his passion since he stepped foot on this earth and began to lead his disciples in the ministry. He instead reveals the glory of God. The Father's will was on full display. And then the Father's response is is magnifying and magnetic to me. It just draws me into the story and into believing in Jesus. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is God's will on full display. That the movement of world events will always result in God's glory. It happened years ago and it's happening this day. The movements of our day and age and the world's decisions will all result in the glorification of God. I'm secure in that, as Christ was secure in that. And then the next guarantee he gives the people that are standing there listening. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world has been cast out. The next guarantee I see Jesus gives us is that the world is judged and its ruler has been dethroned. Three times in this section, Jesus has said the word now. In verse 27, twice in verse 33, and he also says that the hour has come. This is not some impending thing. This is something that has taken place. This is past tense. Brothers and sisters, we are in the last days. This is exciting. What the world is and how it lives and its, it's design to move away from God has been judged And we can see the effects of that. And saying that the ruler has been dethroned. He no longer has power. His greatest tool in his arsenal was death. And those chains have been broken for you and I. And how can I see that this is beginning to happen? So if these are the guarantees, it should have started right away. And guess what it does? Look at verse 32. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Do you remember last week after he died, two people went to go to Pilate? to ask for his body. And we had, it's striking, it's odd. Why would these secret disciples leave the security of anonymity and go and get Jesus' body and honor him like a king? It was all these great signs, but I think John is writing, it's a fulfillment of verse 32. If I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Isn't it significant that two men from the very camp that put him on the cross were the first two to go receive him and treat him as king? Jesus was lifted up. He was drawing people to himself, and he's doing so now. It hasn't ended. And so we are left with the decision that Pastor Jeff has already mentioned to us. What's our response to Christ going to be? The triumphal entry is a fantastic picture of celebrating Jesus. Is that going to be our choice? Will we honor Jesus like the crowd and celebrate him as long as he meets our expectations? Or begin to turn on him once they realize that he didn't come to give them what they wanted. What does the story end in the other accounts as Jesus' triumphal entry? Where does he finish? At the temple. And he cleanses it. He begins to undo their expectations and they begin to turn on him. Or will we be like Judas and begin to challenge Jesus' mission Will we sit in church and question the direction of leaders or individuals as the Lord is leading them, thinking that there's better use of money, better use of, of time? Will we begin to challenge what Christ might be doing? Or Will we go to the full extent of being like the, like the Pharisees who will wish to silence Jesus out of jealousy? When our self-absorption becomes so great, it's either Christ or it's me. And I will silence Jesus, his word, and his truth. I will, I will push it away. I will keep it at arm's length so that I'm not reminded of what is true and what will bring uh, the, the joy and the quality of life that I'm hoping for. Or, as he has already mentioned, will we be like Mary and her family? Will we honor him by displacing our love of self and instead acknowledging who he truly is? Will we acknowledge Christ for what he's done, for what he's accomplished, that he's the creator and sustainer of all things? Will we honor him by submitting to his word, by studying it, by being uh, refreshed by it, by being reminded that it is our hope? It's where we can turn to in our times of our trial, of our loneliness, and our uncertainty. And last, will we honor him by loving what he loves? Why did he come in the first place? To accomplish the will of the Father. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, we love this world too. And all the people in it, all the things in it and the ideas. Father, our friends, I want us to pray and to ask the Father to help us to honor Christ. If there are motives that we have that we need to sacrifice, let us do so. Let's lay it at his throne, knowing that he will forgive and still receive our praise. If we are are being challenged by him, if there's a point of contention and heart of of selfishness that we're holding on to, will you ask him to help release that? Or if there are motives that you're uncertain of, unsure of, will you ask him to help refine those? There was a time in my life when I wouldn't receive, uh, I, I wouldn't allow any praise or adoration when someone said, hey, great sermon or, or good job. I, w- I would push it off every time. I would say, no, no, it was all the Lord, it was all the Lord. And I had a really good pastor come up to me and say, why do you, he, I just, he just challenged me. He said, why do you do that? People want to congratulate you. You did a great work. The Lord used you. Well, why don't you? He says, oh, I, I don't have pure motives. And he said, this side of heaven, who does? And that was a great freedom that I have, that I can stand before the Lord knowing that, yeah, I'm bringing a broken palm frond, that I still have some self-absorption. I still love my life to some degree, but I see it eroding day by day as I follow Christ because there is a greater hope and desire to honor him in the life that I receive because I do so. And so brothers and sisters, I want to invite you into a time of prayer, whether it's talking with your family, whether it's commenting and encouraging one another, how is he leading you to die to self and to follow him? That is an honoring, that's a a principle of honor that we can demonstrate and celebrate Christ. So will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we ask you for help and we ask you for eyes to see and hearts to believe that honoring you is the joy that we're searching for. That honoring you by acknowledging who your son is, by believing and obeying his word, by loving what you love, those things, Father, can you crystallize them in our head and our heart? To Help us practice them and live them out, that we can follow your son and experience the quality of life and know its richness that the world does not know. And Father, I pray for brothers and sisters. I pray for people who may be listening, who are tuning in, that have an experience of distance from you. Father, will you draw near to them? Will your spirit nourish them and feed them and ask them um, to join you in your presence and glorifying your name? For what your son has said, Glorify your name, Father. And we can't wait to hear what you have to say when you respond, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It's in your holy name that we pray, amen.